Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloak and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. It's uh, good to be with you. Um, if you're on YouTube or you're here in person, we're glad to be with you. Uh, if you're on YouTube, we, our desire is that you be with us um, in person as soon as you're able. In the meantime, if you're new to North Cross uh, virtually, you can email us at info at northcrosschurch.com or sid at northcrosschurch.com. Uh, we'd encourage you to, to be known and get to know us as a church. That's a good way to do that. If you're new to North Cross in person this morning, we're really glad you're here. Uh, we do hope you feel welcome. And there is a welcome table out there. If you go out uh, to the foyer, lobby, whatever you want to call it, on the left-hand side, there's a welcome table. You can get a mug and know a little bit more about North Cross. Sign up for our emails and get more involved that way. The other thing I'm going to continue to encourage, it's never too early, never too late. You're just right on time. If you want to try out a life group, you're welcome to do that. Um, you, and I mean try out, and every leader knows this. You can go and you can try it out and you can sit there and say, this works for me, doesn't work for me. And there's one that we hope would be a place where you could find a community. This is sort of like that lobby. Uh, life group is sort of like the living room. Um, and so we want you to sort of have a chance to, to hang out with people in a more comfortable and back and forth setting. All right. In the Christian church calendar, part of why we've moved from Ruth all the way to Matthew. And so in the Christian church calendar, uh, this Sunday celebrates Palm Sunday, the beginning of the last week before Jesus' death and resurrection. It's called Palm Sunday because as we just read together, uh, Jesus entered Jerusalem on Sunday and he entered with a crowd of people holding and waving and laying down tree branches. And according to the Gospel of John, those tree branches were palm tree branches. And so that's how we get the word palm, that's how we get the phrase Palm Sunday. And it's, therefore, it's appropriate to look at this passage, and it might be a very familiar passage to you, or it might be brand new to you. And in either space, the hope is that uh, as we look at um, this passage, you're going to experience a little bit what I experienced studying this passage this week. This passage has so much to tell us. 
so much about who Jesus is and what his heart is for us. And so I hope that you feel that even as we study uh, what could be a familiar passage to you. But before we get into the details of the passage, uh, the triumphal entry is what it's called. Would you pray with me for our time together in God's words to us this morning? Father, thank you uh, for these words. Thank you for your word um, that comes to us. And Lord, uh, we need it. Uh, For some of us, uh, we need it. We know we need it. And for others of us, we're just not sure we need it. And I pray you meet us in in the expectation and in the apathy um, and the refusal and in, in the eagerness. And I pray that you'd meet everyone wherever they are with your word. And Lord Jesus, would you meet us richly uh, and feed us. Open our mouths wide. Open our hearts wide to hear what you'd have for us. And would you separate the wheat from the chaff and help me to speak sweet wheat of your word to people and help me to get out of the way. And would you, Jesus, be high and lifted up? Would we encounter you, Christ, and look to you once again? for our salvation and for our encouragement and our comfort and our challenge. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to move this back. All right. Uh, One of my favorite TV shows is Seinfeld. Uh, One of my favorite TV shows, let alone sitcoms. And I feel like I can start using this reference again because Netflix just released all of the episodes of Seinfeld uh, to to streaming. And so... Um, when they did this, I told my wife immediately, and we decided that we were going to watch Seinfeld from the very beginning, episode one, all the way through, in order. In the very first, we haven't gotten very far, don't worry. In the very first episode, it must have been the pilot episode, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's meeting with his best friend, George Costanza, at what would become a set staple, Tom's Restaurant. And they're, having some, they're enjoying some coffee together when Jerry shares some news. He's met this woman, Laura, at a comedy show in Denver, or excuse me, in Michigan, and she's this warm, bright, very pretty, and they have this connection, right? They have this fun, back and forth, easy conversation with each other, and he's kind of excited, but there's a, and they exchange numbers, but there's this problem. Laura called Jerry, who lives in New York, and said she has to be in New York for a seminar, and maybe she'll meet him when she's there. (laughs) Maybe they'll see each other. Well, George dives into the, the wording. He picks up the has to and the maybe, and he assures Jerry she is not interested in him romantically at all, and she's just being polite, doing the classic follow-up in case they happen to meet each other in Manhattan or into the randomly in Manhattan. But then later that night, Laura calls Jerry on the phone and again, uh, this time, asks for a late-night ride from the airport and to stay for part of her trip with him. And now Jerry is very confused. He's, he's thinking, okay, she's not being polite, but are we just friends or am I something more to her? And then it comes down to the airport gate pickup. So Jerry has to interpret her intentional clues, the signals that she's sending at that moment. And according to George Costanza, you're going to know the whole story the minute she steps off the plane because it's all in the greeting. It's all in the greeting. Jerry will immediately know Laura's intentions by how she enters New York. If she puts down her bags before she greets you, that's a good sign. It means she's interested. 
If she, any movement in the lip area, good sign. A hug, definitely good. Handshake, that's bad. But then in the middle of analyzing how a handshake, maybe a double clasp could be good, all of a sudden Laura appears. She runs up suddenly behind Jerry, covers his eyes, and shouts, guess who? And then they clasp hands and they jump awkwardly up and down in sort of a half hug. And meanwhile, Jerry looks over her shoulder at George, who is just shit, throwing his hands up in the air and mouthing, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> Back at Jerry's apartment, Laura continues to give mixed signals about whether she wants friendship or romance until she suddenly receives a call. After she gets off the phone, Laura looks at Jerry and sighs, never get engaged. <laughs> Jerry says, you're engaged? And Laura replies with a laugh, you know, I can't believe it myself sometimes. And so Jerry can only respond again, you're engaged. And then, you're engaged. Well, according to the gospel writer Matthew, also, it's all in the greeting. It's all in the greeting. We know Jesus' intentions by how he enters Jerusalem, because on purpose, Jesus gives that first century crowd and us clues and signals that tell us who he is, who we are, and who we and Jesus are and will be together. Who he is, who we are, and who we and Jesus are and will be together. That's what Jesus is communicating by clear signals. But these clear signals can feel mixed because kind of like for George and Jerry with Laura, the basic truths about the kind of relationship that Jesus intends they don't fit our ready-made, this kind of relationship does not fit our ready-made expectations about how a relationship should work. Instead, this relationship is much, much deeper and much better than we could guess. And despite the mixed feelings it can invoke in us, the summary I gave earlier of Jesus' intentions and how he acts for us is going to be serve as the outline for us this morning. So let's look at together at these three points. First, verses 1 through 7, Jesus shows us the truth about himself, who he is. Second, verses 8 through 9, Jesus shows us the truth about, about us, who we are. And then finally, in verses 10 and 11, Jesus shows us the truth about us and Jesus, who we and Jesus are and will be together. Pretty simple outline, and as usual, we're going to follow the outline of the sermon projected behind me or in your e-bulletin. We're going to begin at the beginning, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, and how Jesus shows us the truth about him. And I think if we read these passages with an honesty of sorts, we can see this first seven verses feel pretty anticlimactic, don't they? I mean, let's just take a step back. There we are, Jesus is finally drawing near to Jerusalem one last time. This is the destination that the gospel of Matthew and Jesus' itinerary have all been building towards. And then Matthew paints this slow picture of Jesus giving his disciples very detail-oriented, careful instructions about how to rent two donkeys from a man who walked everywhere. And between the rental instructions and the actual pulling up of Jesus' ride, Matthew digresses into a combined excerpt from two Old Testament prophets, Isaiah and Zechariah. 
And so the question is, what is Matthew up to here? Or maybe a better question is, what is Jesus up to here? Because after all, Matthew's only pointing out what Jesus is up to. And really simply put, Jesus is making a carefully planned statement about who he is. He's making a carefully planned statement about who he is. And he's doing this by carefully orchestrating how he enters Jerusalem. That is, Jesus is choreographing actions to communicate the truth about him by deliberate clues and symbolically loaded signals, especially obvious to that first century audience, that crowd greeting him at the, front, at the gate of Jerusalem. Okay, so verses 1 through 7 of our passage are Jesus' highly aware, public statement about who he is. And he's saying this, I am king. Not just a king, but the king. The king of kings, what the Old Testament calls the Messiah. And Jesus is also, at the very same time, a humble king, gentle and lowly of heart. So look, Jesus, the man who has walked everywhere on his feet for three years during his ministry, asks for a mount to ride, and he doesn't ask for a horse. He asks for a donkey and her colt. In the Old Testament, the kings of Israel would sometimes ride a donkey into Jerusalem. And they would ride a donkey instead of a war horse when they wanted to indicate their royal and peaceful intentions. And verse 5 of our passage tells us that Jesus is doing this with a mother donkey and her colt to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about not just any king, but the king the Messiah, who will rescue God's people into real and lasting peace. Not just any peace, the peace. And at the same time, King Jesus is not the conquering warrior that all of Israel clearly expects. He's humble, verse 5. He's in plain, shabby clothes. He's riding on a colt or baby donkey. So grown man Jesus' sandals would have been scraping the dust as his royal ride wobbled to and fro with a group of rowdy fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, peasant women, and not-so-innocent bystanders all in tow and around him. This is a laughable scene. It's laughable, especially when you compare it to just days before the way that the Roman governor Pontius Pilate entered Jerusalem, right? This is how he did it, from the opposite gate, the west gate, not the east gate, on a large white stallion, dressed in the armor of a Roman legionnaire, surrounded by 4,000 fully armed 10th Legion infantry soldiers. So, as you can already tell, Jesus' entrance is giving off what we feel are mixed signals, right? He's humble, but he's also immodest. He's low, but he's also high. He's a helper but he's also a king. He's man and God. He's Jesus and Christ. And all of us struggle to hold these two sides or two aspects of Christ all together. Who is this Jesus? Some of us struggle to accept Jesus's humility, right? That the Lord of the universe will bring peace of the peace of victory through what looks like his own humiliating defeat. 
Earlier in the book of Matthew, chapter 20, Jesus describes his kingly rule as putting others first. The Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served. And later in the book of Matthew, on Good Friday, we will see Jesus' royal throne is a cross, a Roman instrument of torture and death, and that Jesus ascends this terrible throne so that he can defeat our enemies and bring us peace by giving his life as a ransom for many. You see this, Christianity teaches us God endured violence for his people's peace. A downgrade for our upgrade. Death for us to truly live. And this sacrifice began with a shabby clothed baby donkey ride. But others of us struggle not to accept Jesus' humility, but we struggle to accept Jesus' kingship. That Jesus, by riding a royal mount into Jerusalem in fulfillment of the Old Testament, is basically saying to the crowd and to us, crown me or kill me, but I will not be likable or moral only. Crown me or kill me, but I will not just be likable or moral. In the words of Tim Keller, Jesus is pushing the envelope by saying, I want you to worship and obey me, or flee from me, but I will not just be liked. And Jesus says both of these differently demanding things about himself at the exact same time, in the exact same moment. He's humble, the ordinary suffering servant, and he's majestic, extraordinary, the God and King of the universe. And the takeaway of the passage for that first century crowd in Jerusalem and us in Lake Norman is this. We have to embrace, we have to surrender to all of Jesus, all of him. The natural Jesus and the supernatural Christ, the savior of sinners and the Lord of all. To once again refer to an idea by the pastor and writer Tim Keller You can't only invite Jesus the Savior and not Christ the Lord into your life. You gotta invite both both sides or aspects of him. Right? It'd be like asking, if you don't, if you just ask for the Savior and not the Lord, it's like asking only Sid and not Druin to come to your house. (laughs) Okay? I can't come over unless you invite all of me. Because I'm not just any Sid and I'm not just any Druin. I'm Sid Druin, and Jesus isn't just any Jesus, and he's not just any Christ, he's Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? But if you think all the way back to my opening example about the pilot episode of the sitcom Seinfeld, Jerry doesn't fully know Laura's intentions for a relationship with him by just her acted out clues and signals alone, right? It comes down to what is said. She has that classic phrase, never get engaged, Similarly, we get more clarity about what Jesus intends by what is said about him in verses 8 and 9. And from what the crowd says there, we learn the truth about us, our second main point this morning. Verses 8 and 9 describe crowds of people going before and going behind and going all around Jesus. There they are laying down their one and only cloak at his feet in front of Jesus and waving and spreading palm branches on the road before him and all around him. And these deeds are meant to honor him, to honor Jesus as the coming king. 
This is an improvised triumphal procession, right? It's a V-Day, Victory Day, Tinker Tape parade of sorts. The crowd is rolling out the VIP red carpet for Jesus. And their words in verse 9 tell us the crowd doesn't just think Jesus is any old king, a king. He's the king, the king of kings. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The crowd here is belting out the lyrics to an oh-so-familiar worship song that they love. That they sing all the way up to Jerusalem on, the, on their pilgrimage. The crowd here is belting out Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Hosanna, or save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But notice it's so interesting, the crowd is improvising lyrics. They're adding lyrics to Psalm 118 in the scene. First, they are crying out, Hosanna, or save us, please. Who are they crying out to? The son of David. Where is that in the psalm? They added it. What does the son of David mean? By the first century, that is a term used almost exclusively of the ultimate Messiah king. Right? Second, the crowd improvises the end of verse 9. Hosanna in the highest. That is, the crowd is asking for Jesus to save them now, please, Hosanna. But in the highest, or save them in the deepest and best possible way he can. And I'm struck by the reality, and it's very, very likely, that they knew not what they said. Right? They're speaking, they're asking for something well beyond the usual prayers. They are probably making a request much deeper and much harder, and much better than they could guess. You see, the crowd is trying to reenact and trying to speak the lines from another triumphal entry that happened just 200 years before, when Judas Maccabee entered Jerusalem, fanned by palm branches after his defeat of the Greek Gentile Empire. And so the crowd believes that Jesus is this king, the king, that Judas Maccabee pointed to, who will once and for all save them by military might from the Roman Gentile Empire and any other foreign entity or empire. And so he will establish a political and military peace in Israel for all time. And what the crowd longed for most was a king who will change their circumstances, not their selves. How do we know this? Because only a few days later, the same crowd, along with this whole city, begged the Roman Gentile governor Pontius Pilate to crucify peaceful Jesus and to release the violent revolutionary Barabbas instead. There's this line to a familiar worship song that every time I hear it, well, not every time, but most times I hear it, I choke up. When I sing it, and the song is How Deep the Father's Love for Us, and it goes like this. I won't sing it for you. <laughs> Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. I get choked up because I realize that in my heart, I'm not that different from that crowd at Jesus' triumphal entry. I am almost always praying for Jesus to save me from Rome, from some outside of me situation or circumstance or person. 
And I can get so heartsick, so angry when my prayers for what I really want from God are not actually answered. And my best pastoral guess is that you can get that way too. And I appreciate the way a fellow pastor, Brian Habig, puts the questions behind a heartache. What is the number one on my to-do list for the Messiah? (laughs) What's the number one on my to-do list for what the Messiah should be up to? What kind of peace do I actually want King Jesus to bring into my life and world? What kind of peace do I want him to bring into my life and world? What would make me lift my palm branch in praise? What does he have to do to get me to lift my palm branch in praise? In other words, what do you and I think we need from God? What do you want for God to be most right now? Maybe it's a feeling. I just want to feel better, God. Healthier my body or my mind. God, I just want my relationships to feel safer. My marriage or children or my friendships just to feel easier. I just want life to work. I want to feel less sad or mad about my life. Maybe it's a desire for uncertain things to get more certain. With work or at the doctor's office, or in the Bible. Problems at home or school to get solved. That's what I want, God. I want bills to get paid. I want housing to get affordable in this area. I want the future to get obvious and smooth and easier to navigate. And all of this, Hosanna, I want quickly, right now, today. And really, it is like so good just to take a moment and to speak aloud to God the unspoken prayers of our hearts. (laughs) To sit in that and acknowledge our honest prayers about our honest desires. But also, we need to move from those things as well. We need to ask ourselves another set of harder questions. What does what I think about God, what God should be doing, what does what kind of peace I think I actually need, what is that kind of desire or question or prayer request? What are these prayer requests for what I think God should be up to in my life? What do they reveal about what I think is actually the problem with me in this world? Is it the Roman occupation that's the primary problem? It was very, very bad, by the way, terrible. Is the real problem my children's behavior, my job, or the school I go to, or where I live? Is the real problem my parents or spouse, or not even having parents, or good parents or spouse? Yes, these can be bad, and they are hard things, and they deserve much prayer. But what if they're just symptoms on the surface of a deeper, more primary problem? What if we're so busy praying for cough drops and tissues, we don't pray for antibiotics? The Times London newspaper once sent out a letter to all the famous living writers in England. And this le- the letter simply asked a question, the deepest of questions. What is wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world today? 
And one author who received this letter wrote a speedy reply back, and it was simple and it was brief. There's a letter in return that said just simply this, Dear Sir, so what is the problem with the world today? Dear Sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's the problem with the world today? Dear Sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. You see, what Chesterton was saying was what's wrong with the world today is sin, right? And the sin, I'm infected with the sin too. And so we don't just need Jesus to bring judgment on them, on those you identify as the Romans ruining the world that you live in or the circumstances ruining my days. We need Jesus to bear judgment for us to end evil in the highest and the deepest parts, but also to spare us to not make an end of us, of you and me. Do you believe this this morning? Do you believe that's the primary problem and the primary solution? What about us? Do you believe that about us? Us with the spaces in our human hearts where there is a mismatch between our expectations and God answers. What do we do with those spaces? And so we see the crowd's prayer for Hosanna in the highest as a cry for all of Jesus to be applied to all of us. And this has to change the truth about us and Jesus, who we are and who we will be together. And that's our third and final point in verses 10 and 11. If the bad news is so much deeper and higher and more personal than we imagined, that means the good news that the prophet Jesus from Nazareth has come is much higher and much deeper and much more personal and better than we ever imagined and also much deeper, higher, better than the bad news. (laughs) Verse 10 makes us feel what the gospel news riding into Jerusalem on a baby donkey actually did. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? The entire city of Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands strong at the Passover feast, is to a man, woman, and child asking this question, what is going on here? Who is this man? And they are all frantically asking this question, because they are, quote-unquote, stirred up. That might be the weakest translation of a Greek word in the Bible. (laughs) That word in the Greek is where we get the word seismic. Okay? It is earthquake language. Jerusalem is emotionally and spiritually earthquaking. Okay? It's the same Greek word Matthew uses only three other times in his entire gospel. When does he use it? At Jesus' birth. At Jesus' crucifixion. At Jesus' resurrection. And what is everyone? Who is everyone so worked up and worked over by? Verse 11. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. From a town so small, Nazareth, that the crowd feels like they have to explain the region it resides in. Galilee, right? That, That small town there. With a name so ordinary, Jesus, Josh, People have to say what town or region he's from so they don't get confused. But the crowd knows he's not a prophet. He's the prophet, the Messiah. And because Jesus is the prophet, the priest, the king, he comforts our fears and he challenges even our desires. Just think again about that disconnect between what we think we need 
and what God actually gives us? How do we keep our hearts and our minds afloat in that disappointment? Listen to the way that Tim Keller puts it. It's so good, I'm gonna read it twice. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. I think it's a quote if you wanna put it up in the meditations, if you can find it. I'll read it again. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. But let's not deny the dignity there. I don't want to deny the dignity behind that prayer for Hosanna in the highest that that crowd is uttering. Yes, Jesus came to Jerusalem that first time to save those who believe he did from the penalty and power of sin. He who was without evil was judged evil on a cross so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's so important. But Jesus will also come again a second time to Jerusalem. He will enter in again, this time to save you and me and anyone else who trusts in Jesus. He will save us from the very presence of evil. There will be no more sin in our homes or offices, in hospitals or churches and all the relationships in between. And Jesus will wipe away all of the tears of anger and the tears of sadness the tears of difficulty and the tears from danger that come to our eyes without our knowing it. And this is because God not only more highly, more deeply, more personally answers our prayers, he will also answer our hosannas in the highest more broadly to the very ends of the earth in every detail. And it all starts here, at the gates of Jerusalem. To paraphrase George Costanza, you're going to know the whole story the minute he steps into the city. Because it's all there. It's in the greeting. It's all in the greeting. Would you pray with me again? Father, thank you. Thank you for stirring up so much, for earthquaking us by your presence, rattling our cage. Lord, I I confess, I hate being rattled. I hate being uncertain. I hate feeling sad and mad. But Lord, I also know that's where you work. I know you cry with us. I know you're angry at injustice. Lord, I know you're alongside us. And Lord, so if you rattle our cages, if you stir up our hearts and earthquake our souls, I just would ask that you, you would rescue us, that you'd still us with the blood of your salvation and the promise of the new heavens and new earth. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.